0: Hey, everybody. Randy here. Welcome into another episode of the Trap Draw podcast. As always, thank you to Mr. Jeezy for the great introduction. Have a good one today. My guest is Damon Hack. Damon currently works for the Golf Channel, which he joined in 2012, uh, serving as co-host for Morning Drive, the network's daily news and lifestyle program. He is also a contributing writer for GolfChannel.com. Prior to joining Golf Channel, Damon worked for Sports Illustrated, where he covered golf and the NFL, Uh, and before his time at Sports Illustrated, he worked for the New York Times, uh, as well as Newsday, covering both the NFL, uh, a little NBA. He also got a start at the Sacramento Bee as a beat writer for the San Francisco 49ers. So, Damon is a West Coast guy, born in Los Angeles. He graduated from UCLA and also from Cal Berkeley with a master's degree in journalism. So thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Damon. I hope you do too. Before we get to that interview though, I have one question uh, for everybody listening. What club in the bag do you use the most? Well, I'm here to tell you, probably in in the average round of golf, you're gonna use a range finder more than any other club in your bag. And every golfer needs a rangefinder that they can trust to know the precise distance to their target, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. The No Laying Up team uh, from Solitron, the C-suite to myself and Neil, the Strap Boys carries Precision Pro Golf rangefinders, and right now their NX7 Pro Slope model is on sale for two hundred and nineteen dollars. Our listeners can receive an extra twenty dollars off by using the code Trap Draw. Again, that's Trap Draw. And by my math, that means uh, you can uh, add an award-winning slope range finder to your golf bag this summer for uh, just under $200. Plus, and here's the great part, Precision Pro Golf is the only range finder that offers free battery replacement services, which saves golfers an additional $64 on average. So you're not only getting a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. Precision Pro is based in Cincinnati, Ohio, which you know I love. They perform all their quality control tests at Avon Fields Golf Course, which is coincidentally the site of my uh, best round ever. And if that isn't good enough, Juju, I don't know what is. So head on over to PrecisionProGolf.com. Use coupon code TRAPDRAW at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder. And swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Now on to my interview with Damon Hack. Hey. Morning, Damon. How are you? I'm great, Big ready What's going on? Oh, not much. Um, I, my first question, right off the top, I chose those those first two words very uh, consciously. Morning, Damon. Uh, do you do you know what that refers to, or do you know it's a big part of uh, our lexicon here? at No laying up, and I'm just I'm curious if you know why. I'm not I'm not sure why. <laughs> Um, well, it goes back to, we get the biggest kick out of, I believe 2015, June, 2015 at the U S open, uh, you were interviewing Gary player from Chambers Bay and it's like the intro to it and you, and uh, you know, just a very nice, good morning, Mr. Player. How are you? Uh, and he starts his response morning, Damon. And then I think goes into like a five or six minute diatribe about how awful the design at Chambers Bay is. Does does that ring a bell?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it does ring a bell. We still talk about it uh, in the hallways uh, at Golf Channel where uh, we have like a blooper reel that, that we show sometimes before our show begins just to get us all, you know, energy up, laughing. And, and so that's uh, what's that five years later, we still laugh about that. Probably the, the longest answer to a, a good morning uh, in the history of, of this business. And Gary uh, Plant <laughs> had something to get off his chest, and, and boy did he ever, did not like
0: chambers bay did he he did not like it um oh my gosh i'm so glad to hear you guys you guys recognize the uh, the comedy in that and and celebrate it as well um it is oh,
1: uh one of a kind one <laughs> of a kind gary player i mean the man i, I love what i love in the world i'm the most traveled, uh, athlete in the history of our planet i mean i mean he's uh, he's 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 gold He is
0: gold. He is gold. Yeah. What do you, uh, I'm here in the most wonderful state in the, in the union, Washington. Um, Yeah. And then, oh boy, I'm always like, if I ever meet Damon Hack, like, I want to ask him about that. So I I appreciate you. uh, I appreciate your patience with that. Um, It's great to have you. I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you for um, really for two reasons. One, I, and what I want to dive into first is is just to learn more about your background, uh, your experience in golf, how you got to... Um, how you came to the decision to cover golf professionally. Um, you've been at Golf Channel, gosh, the last eight years, but um, did a number of writing for a number of different outlets we can we can touch on before that, some golf, some non-golf. Uh, but then beyond that, I, I was very... Um, touched and and struck by your article on Golf Channel on June 1st entitled Can I Be Both Thankful and Horrified? Can I? And I, I think that was, you know, obviously, um, you speaking up in, in this climate where race relations and racial equality is at the forefront uh, for, for all of us. And, you know, that extends into into golf as well. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love to kind of touch upon those themes and, and talk to you a little bit about that, if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, why don't we start? I, you know, I don't know how you came to the game of golf. How What was your start uh, playing golf?
1: Gosh, it was... Uh... Not traditional, I'll tell you that. I, I did not grow up in a golf house. Uh, my mom didn't play, dad didn't play, no aunts, uncles, grandparents. Nobody played golf. And if golf was on the television set at our house, we were waiting for the Lakers game to come on. <laughs> I mean, we just speak, golf was just foreign to us. Uh, it, it wasn't until I went to UCLA, I was an intern at KMPC Radio, uh, an all sports uh, talk station. Station director's name was Scott O'Neill uh who loved the game uh and was a golfer and avid one at that and damon do you play golf and i don't i don't play golf i'm gonna take you to the golf course he takes me to this place called spanish hills and eh, i want to get to know the station director i'm no I'm fool i want you know, he wants to take me to the golf course i'll go so we play this beautiful private club and i'm a complete fish out of water but i hit a couple of you know, I'm not saying good shots for me at that point. I shot 144, <laughs> um, but I was like, "Man, I'm 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 outside. It's pretty here. Like, I I, I kind of see what the fuss is. I guess I'm not entirely comfortable, but um, that was the beginning for me. And and then next thing I know, Scott gifting me with a set of Arnold Palmer Peerless irons. Uh, they were sweet, man. I, I I still contend they're some of the best irons I've ever hit. So so good on the king uh, for those clubs, but I didn't really know who Arnold Palmer was. I know he was in commercials and vaguely knew he had something to do with golf, but that's how ignorant I was of the game and its history and its roots. But that was the beginning of me starting to play, getting invited to play. Uh, and I went to grad school in 94. God, that's the first year Tiger won the U S amateur. I'm starting to see this dude who's also from California who went to a PAC 10 school, who looks a little bit like I do? So it's kind of a combination of things. I started to to, to meet some students at Berkeley who who like golf, and there was a great public course not far from campus called Tilden Park. And we'd find times on our schedule, especially in that second year. It's a two-year program to get a master's degree in journalism at Berkeley. So, like like most students in their last year of a program, you're you're, you're putting the schedule together. that works best for you to find some free time and play hooky. And we would do that, and we'd go play golf in in Berkeley and Fairfield, California, and um, down in Alameda, and occasionally across the bay in San Francisco. And I started to play a little bit better. Not great, but had enough guys that were of a similar level where we could have some good battles. And I was like, man, this is is cool. This is something I wish I had done as a kid because I might be a little better uh, than I am now.
0: Yeah, I... (laughs) And, and I didn't mean to, I, I, first of all, I love that, you know, you can still remember your, your 144 and, and just to count all your strokes. I mean, that's, that's impressive in and of itself. Honestly, um, it, it's such a high, it, it's funny cause it's such a high barrier uh, for anybody, but certainly I, I think adults more so than kids coming, coming to golf just because of that embarrassment and the constant failure is very easy to. Uh, you know, it it can be very easy to drive people away. Did you kind of get hooked right away, or was there that? I, I imagine being a sports fan. You know, there was probably some internal competitive competitiveness to uh, to get yeah. better. Was was that kind of the case for you?
1: That was because you know I could shoot jump shots, and I could you know I played tennis in high school for a year, played basketball for two. Uh, I've considered myself and still do athletics, and this was something that was hard. It's still hard, and and I was you know, bound and determined to get a little bit better and, and I have been able to do that, but definitely there was a the competitive part of me was like, why is, why is this game so hard? Why could I hit one shot right on the screws and that shot is, is a potential whip, stuff, skull, slice, hook. I mean, there's so much can go wrong. and uh, still can go wrong, but when it's right, it's just a great feeling. I think there are a few feelings in sports that, that, that bring you back. You know, when basketball for me was the Swiss of the net uh, in tennis, it was an ace down the middle. and In golf, it's a well-stuck seven iron or, or three wood or drive or making a fifty-foot putt. I mean, even today, like, and I'm very showy. I'm not gonna lie. If I make a fifty-foot putt, I'm I'm running around the green like Dale Irwin. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm waving to a crowd that isn't there. I'm I'm dumping my cap. I'm staring down my 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 buddies. I mean, I, I love I love the pageantry. And the beauty of the game, and I also got into the history of the game at, at Berkeley because I was taking a class, basically a sports writing class. So I was starting to read about, you know, the the great writers who were covering, you know, Jack in '86, like Rick Riley or or Frank DeFord, who's writing about the duel in the sun with Jack and Tom Watson. So I also was a, a new player, and I was new to the history of the game. And there's Tiger Woods, uh, who's suddenly uh, this dynamo and the best player in the game, all happening. In the 1990s, when I'm new to the game. So there were a lot of reasons that kept me around and trying to bring that 144 down just a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, and and you reference your time, You, you graduated with your master's degree from Cal Berkeley in journalism. I'm curious. Did you was um, was your intention to always go into sports journalism, or is that something you know? How, how was that decision made? Uh, and, and then you know the the logical follow up. I, I think you started. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Was your first job at the San Francisco B covering the the San Francisco 49ers? Um, I'm I'm curious how covering the NFL. Um, Transitioned into the NFL and golf. You know what what that yeah. process was like professionally, uh, branching into into professional golf.
1: Yeah, I always wanted to be involved in in sports. I uh, was a sports writer, and then I, I covered the Niners for the Sacramento Bee. I was an intern in nineteen ninety six. So ninety five intern at the Fresno Bee, part of the McCutcheon chain of newspapers. So ninety five was actually a business and features uh, writer, an intern. Uh, knowing that I wanted to do sports, but it was decided that I needed to, you know, to be a good journalist. You, you can't just cover what you want. You know, can you cover a story about uh, a mom and pop business in the Central Valley? Uh, can you write a feature about, um, you know, a, a worker uh, who tends the fields, uh, you know, in, in you know, in 100 degree weather. So I was being challenged early to kind of get out of my comfort zone, write about things that I wasn't necessarily an expert on, so that was my summer of 95, 96. I'm hired as an intern at Sacramento Bee. Spent a year kind of backing up some sports and who are beat writers. So I'd go an A's game here, a 49ers game there, pop down to do a Raiders game, uh, a little Sac State, little high school sports where you're carrying the old uh, TRS 80, yeah. and you have couplers, and <laughs> you're going to a payphone and hoping that the couplers will fit the, the receiver and the mouthpiece, and you're booting up your TRS-80 and hoping that the, the whole story makes it somehow to the death at the Sacramento Bee. So from that, after a year of doing that, crazily enough, the the beat writer for the, the Niners, Don Bosley, at, at Sacramento Bee wanted to, to you know ask off the beat. He didn't want to travel anymore. wanted to spend more time with his kids, and it was a time at the B where a lot of the sports writers already done the, the Niner beat he didn't to be more. So it was presented to me, Damon, do you want to try out as the Niners beat writer for, for a summer? So they said, you know, we're going to give you training camp six weeks to prove you could do this beat one year out of being out of grad school. I was like, sure. I, I love sports. I was already a sports fan, a little bit about the Niners. They gave me six weeks, um, following my, my, uh, my year of doing different things. By then they had hired me full time. uh, But I thought I was just going to be kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. They liked my writing over the six weeks, Thought I told some good stories, offered me the job as the beat writer, which I did from 97 to 99 covered three years. Great years, great beat writers in San Francisco. Ira Miller, Clark, Judge, Brian, Murphy, Kevin Lynch, Matt Mayoko. A lot of those writers are still there covering football in the Bay area. So did that for three years, got offered a job uh, by Newsday, Long Island Paper, to move to New York to cover the Knicks. And that was just because of relationships. The writer in the Bay Area knew the editor of Newsday. They were looking for a young writer to cover uh, the NBA, cover the Knicks. Uh, I was ready to to, to move to New York. My sister moved to New York uh, a year before me, so I thought I'd have family there. Covered the Knicks for two years. At that point, my golf it's continuing to grow. My love of the game. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of really covering teams, loving playing the game. I started to ask around the New York area, you know, was there any golf beats available? And there was a golf beat available at the Newark Star Ledger. I'll never forget it. I interviewed because I was ready to leave this day. I'm going to the Newark Star Ledger to cover the great game of golf, which by this point, you know, I've been playing for four or five years. I'm a complete nut about. Tigers won the Masters by 12. Uh, he's won uh, the the, uh, the Tiger Slam at that point. And I want to cover golf now. So they, they have an opening at the ledger, offer me a job. Newsday says, Damon, we don't want to lose you. They offer me the golf beat. So I started covering golf uh, for Newsday. Did it for, I guess it would have been the U.S. Open um, at Southern Hills, 2001. So that's coming off of the Tiger Slam. I covered that all the way to 2002. Uh, U.S. Open at Best Page. Got offered a job at the New York Times to cover the NFL. Did that for three years. 05, um, uh, opportunity to cover golf for the Times. Did that from 05 to 07. Sports Illustrated came calling, wanted me to cover golf and NFL for them did that from 07 to 12. And then in 2012, as the um, advertising dollars started to dry up in print, uh, SI's offering buyouts. At the same time, golf channel is changing formats, changing morning drive from a two-man booth from Gary Williams and Cecilius to more of a Today show type format. And I'd known uh, Jeff Russell, his wife of Molly Solomon, was running the entire Golf Channel operations. Jeff was a Golf Digest editor. Molly, executive producer. They offered me a job late 2012. I fly to San Francisco or from San Francisco after Webb Simpson wins the U.S. Open and Olympics. I fly to Orlando, sit across from Gary Williams for four days. Uh, on that Friday, I got offered a job a from Golf Channel. That was it. Moved my family from New York to Orlando, summer of 2012, and have been at Golf Channel ever since.
0: That was a much better answer to the, the question that I asked. So, and, and much more comprehensive too. So I, I appreciate that. Um, can I, uh, you'll have to forgive me. I, I want to ask some questions and some of them I might feel a little awkward about. Uh, and I, and I hope you won't, I, I hope you don't mind that. Um, Not at all. I, when you were just getting into golf, So my my question is twofold. One, I uh, candidly, I'm not aware of many, at least prominent national black golf writers. Um, And I, I, my question for you is, were you aware of that as you were trying to, uh, you know, start this career in in golf journalism? Is is that something on your mind? Talk to me about that experience, if, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, there were actually two prominent African-American golf writers but when I started covering golf for Newsday. Uh, Cliff Brown from the New York Times, uh, who I replaced, and then Keith McDaniel from Golf Digest magazine, who also worked with Jeff Russell, um, who I mentioned at, at, at Digest. So thankfully, when I went into the you know U.S. Open Press Center, uh, immediately you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of golf riders from all over the country and the world, and you've got radio and TV. There were at least two other African Americans in in the in the fold, and, and prominent ones, fantastic writers and reporters in, in their own right. The two guys who I actually looked up to and leaned on, uh, and followed, and, and walked with inside the ropes. So it wasn't a complete. Um, I'm not going to say it was completely comfortable all the time because early on, you know, you, you get the and I'm talking early on. We're talking 19 years ago when you're getting that season credential for the first time. I I had it spun around a, a couple of times early on, making sure the face was right that my face was the one that that you know was walking through those doors. Um, I felt a little nervous early on. Um, part of it might have been my own, you know, projecting on it. Part of it may have been some uncomfortable looks that I felt were coming my way. But but thankfully I was not I was not alone. Now now you want to say if there's 300, 400, you know, journalists covering a U.S. Open at, at Southern Hills, height of Tiger Woods' power and only three African-American riders, uh, that's definitely not a reflection of, of America. But, you know, you know there's, there's no doubt that even as far as golf has come and our, as far as our country has come, that those numbers are reflective of the United States of America. And, and golf, you know, does have a, a, an exclusive past. Uh, that has been hard to shake as, as a buddy of mine described, it's like trying to turn around, you know, a ship in the Navy. It's, it's gonna take, it takes some time to, to, to make a, a warship turn, uh, in, in choppy waters. So, uh, I, I was not alone, but I was not always entirely comfortable either
0: and what uh, in the in the 19 years since since you started ha, talk to me about that ha, has ha, have you seen much change is, is there you know ha, did the tiger effect result in changes uh, within the media I, I mean I think and, and it's something I want to Talk to you about as well. I, you know, back in '97, in the height of the Tiger era, right? So maybe '97 to, to the mid 2000s. I, I just personally would have guessed we'd see more uh, African American golfers. Now, now there are, you know, Harold Varner, of course, in, in contention last week. Um, but I, I just wrestle with, you know, what gosh did uh, you know the this this tiger effect did, did it ha- has it changed much I, I guess that's that's my question I'm curious to, to hear your your thoughts on that
1: you know from my perspective I think Tiger Woods has been like the greatest thing to happen to golf and and one of the worst because I think it's he's obviously attracted minorities and women and people who would never think about picking up a golf club but I think it's also in some ways might have made the golf industry a little bit lazy because hey well, hey, the best player in the world is, is, is uh, you know, multicultural, if not African-American. And we know Tiger identifies himself as multicultural. His mom is from Thailand. So uh, but for a, you know, an African-American kid to at least have someone to say, oh, he look a little bit like me. I mean, he's done wonderful things with his foundation and STEM education. But I also think in some ways let the golf industry off the hook because the golf industry can say, well, hey, the best player in, in the world is a minority. So, you know, obviously the game is, the game is great. The game is doing all, all it needs to do and all it can to, to increase the number of, of, of African Americans in positions of power, in, you know, organizations, um, you know, in media, you know, on television and in print. And I think in a lot of ways. Uh, the golf industry got a little lazy and, and, and didn't really see that this was an issue just because Tiger was so prominent. You had, hey, Tiger's on commercials. And went in the Masters by 12, and a U.S. Open by 15, and an open by eight, and four majors in a row. And what's what, what the there that our game is diverse? Well, really, when you look at the numbers, why aren't there more African-Americans playing? Why are there more African-Americans in, in decision-making positions in our game? And it's because the game is still, in a lot of ways, inaccessible, out of reach, expensive. Uh, I, I think for a lot of children in uh, the African-American community in particular, uh, golf might as well be a game played on the moon. It's still not as accessible, I think, as as it could be or as it should be.
0: Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> what was going through my mind as you were saying you know about tiger being the, the number 1 golfer in the world and and maybe the the false sense of of um, you know well everything's fine right we it it <laughs> i couldn't help but think you know the last 8 years as a country right with with president obama and oh, yeah. you know while, while yes we we elected the first african american president it, 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 there's obviously a, a lot that still needs to be done and, the, and that in no way is is you know a, an end point in racial relations as obviously as we've seen over the last couple of weeks.
1: Well I think both things can be true. I mean only in a country like America could could Barack Obama's story be possible. I think the fact that he was elected is, is huge and shows that tremendous progress has been made, but it doesn't mean that tremendous progress, doesn't still need to be made. And and I'll tell you over the last few weeks, I've actually been, um, you know, optimistic and and excited and emboldened because I feel like we're hearing from voices that maybe we haven't heard on this topic before. And, and, you know, listen, I mean, can golf solve all of society's ills? I I don't think so, but I I do think golf can take a look in the mirror and say, well, what can we do differently? Uh, What can we do to, to make the game more representative of society and, and make our game, you know, more multicultural still, and and to know that there are things that maybe our industry could do that, that could have an effect not just on our game, but on society. Think about the relationships that people uh, in the industry have. I'm talking about television executives and and members of SunePak and Augusta and in national and uh, Peach Crew, I mean, these are members at exclusive clubs that have relationships with government and titans on Wall Street and Fortune 500 companies. I, I think we know there's a reason people say, "Well, you learn to play golf because that's where those business deals are made." I mean, there are so many reasons why uh, a golf can be uh, an instrument for for good and for change and for and for really pushing the envelope. Even if the conversation can sometimes be awkward, stilted and uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Um, and the, you actually—that act, was one of the things I, I wanted to ask you—was just about your your sense of optimism. Um, and it's probably a question that let's give it twelve months, eighteen months, twenty-four months. You know, even even a little longer. But you know, even in this three weeks since, or just about three weeks uh, since you published your piece on Golf Channel, um, it's it's nice to hear that there is some optimism. And and um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that worries me is, is, um, you know, that this moment kind of slips by and we give it some attention for, for a few weeks and, you know, in the end, well, what, what really came of it? You know, if, if, if there's no action on the back end and, and, you know, we, there's, there's no change, then it seems like a bit of a wasted opportunity, but hopefully that won't be the mm. case.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote, the news, um, with the feeling that I wanted to share with, readers and and viewers of morning drive that here i am absolutely blessed thankful excited um honored to have the job that i have know that it's it's uh it's 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 a really valuable platform and piece of real estate to be a part of, of golf channel and morning drive but that also that my heart was broken that that stories that my grandfather and father had told me about life in america uh, were, were stories that I, as an African American male and dad, had experienced myself, and that I might have to talk to my kids about. And I, I didn't want to write the story and say, "Oh, Damon, you, you know, stop whining." And, and it wasn't about Damon complaining or Damon, you know, not thankful for the job. I wanted, to, I wanted to take a chance, I guess, and, and reveal that I'm, I'm both thankful and horrified uh, that someone who looks like me. Uh, could have a knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes and and then reflecting on my own life. Okay. Pulled over a couple of times without drugs or weapons in my car, being asked if I had both of those things. And I'm someone that's not even smoked a joint uh, in 48 years on this planet, being frisked in front of his mom's home. um, You know, while his mom watched and she's raising her voice at the police and I'm calling my mom down. I mean, these are, these are real life experiences that I'm also thankful to never escalate to a point where uh, I was hurt or, or, or put in jeopardy. Um, but, but man, it's stressful. I can be on television and talking about Tiger and Phil and Bryson and Kevin Na and everybody else. But when I'm not on TV, I'm a six foot three bald headed black dude jogging in winter park, Florida, a largely affluent, largely homogenous white neighborhood and and if I see another jogger, it's hi. I'm smiling. I'm, I'm not a threat. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in an elevator with someone. and I see you know, fear in their eyes. I'm like, hi. I'm I'm on floor number seven, please. Thank you. I mean, you know, it, that's kind of been you know my experience just in America, and, and it's and I'm not saying it's all bad. Uh, I, I've had wonderful opportunities. I'm thankful for for the life I have. But but it, it it's not it's not always complete. It's not always without the stress of knowing that if a police officer is behind me, my hands are on the wheel, I'm feeling a little bit of stress, what could possibly happen? And, and I just wanted to share my feeling in this moment. And I felt like I couldn't do television and be me. And I was told eight years ago, oh, for you to be on television, you have to be yourself. And I was going, you know what? I can't be me and be smiling on the camera in this moment, talking about, and bogeys and FedEx Cup points that I can't reveal the pain I'm feeling right now by seeing someone who looks like me who's just lost his life just after Brianna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery who's jogging in Brunswick, Georgia not far from where I was jogging, uh, you know, covering the RSM Classic down the road to Sea Island. I mean, these are – I'm picturing myself in these situations, you know, being pulled over and, and being scared. Uh, and and, be, and I just wanted to reveal that and share that with my viewers. And I hope that my viewers who know me and people who have read me know that I'm an optimist and that I'm leaning on the good in people and so like this is hopefully a teaching moment for all of us to do a little bit better and to say, Hey, I'm not accusing anybody of being racist. Um, but I think it's time for us to be anti-racist. This is not uh, an African American problem. It's an American problem. It's going to take some people, you know, going out of their way and saying, "Let's be vigilant. If we hear things, see things, let's 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 make uh, this country that we all love. Let's make it better. Let's let, let's make it better for all of our citizens. You, you know, this is you know, my fellow Americans. Let's let's make this better for all of us who who live here and all of us uh, who love this game."
0: Yeah, that's that's so well said. I, I thank you. Um, it, and that last bit about being you know it's not it's I, I was listening to a, an interview recently with uh, the former NBA basketball player John Amici and that was mm-hmm. um, you know that that was the thing that he kept coming back to was it it's not it's not enough to not be racist, right? Like nobody should feel satisfied that that's enough to, to what you said. It, it's we, we, we have to be vigilant and, and have standards and hold those closest to us, to those standards and, and work I, I to be so. anti-racist.
1: And I say this, I say this as someone whose cousin is FBI retired, uh, Tommy, who, who my cousin is, is the coolest cat, on the planet, and, and I respect his job and, and, and the situations he was in. And my wife's cousin uh, is is active NYPD. So cool, it's so strong, so brave, so important. I say this to someone who respects the badge and, and respects the work that police officers do. Uh, so can I imagine the conflict I feel that I, that I that I can respect and, and honor people in my own family, but also feel nervous. Um, and, and disappointed that I've had these situations happen only because of the color of my skin. And I and I wrote this in the story that was posted on Golf Channel of, of being with three white friends driving on a New Jersey turnpike back from a great weekend in Atlantic City and I got pulled over. I was the driver. I got pulled over by a police officer and, you know, I looked and, you know, rolled down the window, yes, officer. I said, is there a problem? It was, oh, there was a, there was a dog loose on the turnpike. Literally just Pulled us this, pull this over, went back to his car, drove away, and we went on our way uh, back to New York City. I got a text message from one of my three friends who was in the car with me at the time. I got the text message uh, after I wrote the story. He's like, Damon, I, I remember that moment in the car. He got pulled over for no reason other than being black. And he goes, I think about that moment all the time. And thank you for reminding me of that. And then I said, Matt, thank you, pal. You tell your friends that story. You know, tell people that story that that stuff happens. Uh, even for a law-abiding citizen like me, who never even smoked pot, and, and Randy, it's one of the reasons why I don't use drugs today. And like I, I've been in neighborhoods where people smoke pot and, and have their you know whatever Saturday night deals. I don't do it for two reasons. One, because I'm a child of just say no, and I remember Len Bias, great basketball player, who was drafted by the Celtics, who died O.D.ing on Coke when I was fourteen years of age and I was like, you know what, that's something I'm not gonna do. And for the second reason, it's just principle, knowing that there are a lot of black kids in neighborhoods who have sold marijuana and have ended up on the wrong side of a three strikes law. And I'm not gonna smoke pot while I have colleagues or friends that do. Um I'm not gonna do it because I think it perpetuates some of the problems that we see. That it's okay for a certain segment of the population to do to do drugs and for another population. In our country It could mean 10-15 years Or more behind bars So mm-hmm. I know I'm getting deep On, on a, lot of, a
0: lot No of No please but,
1: Yeah But this is uh, This is what's been on my mind and, and more importantly On my heart Over the last three weeks If yeah. not longer
0: Yeah um, No just the, And it's it's, it's it's really an issue I'm I fully admit I'm not qualified to speak on but yeah when you when you peel, peel back the layers and, and get into our criminal justice system and and it's that that's where I it, it, it's so easy to feel pessimistic or like you're up against or we are up against like such you, you made the analogy of you know trying to turn a battleship and man. Sometimes that battleship feels so big and so yeah. heavy. Um, but what, what I did want to ask you about, though, is in moments like this, and especially in, in the golf world where it, it skews so, you know, it, it's a lot more white folks than, than African-Americans, uh, I, I think, and, and myself included, I have you on my podcast, I, I think we, speaking as, you know, white people, naturally tend to, turn to folks like yourself, African Americans, and expect them and want them to speak up on issues like this. And that's important. I, I'm wondering if you ever feel that burden to kind of speak for so many people. And, and I say that in, you know, I've never been asked to speak for uh, for white folks, right? Like nobody ever comes to me and says, well, you know, this is an issue with white people and I need you to speak up. And it, it's, I, I think over the, and, and somebody who's really opened my eyes, I, I love the Bomani Jones podcast. He, he works mm-hmm. for ESPN and he's fabulous. And I think he's someone who's really helped educate me just through listening to him in, in this Almost double standard that exists where you know the, these race issues are. This is a problem for everybody, right? This isn't just a problem for African Americans. This is this is a problem for all of us. Yet, you know, we all turn to you know, in the world of golf, it's like, well, what's Tiger Woods going to say about it, right? Or let's yeah. you know, Harold Varner. Um, and and I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on on that dynamic and. You know, if, if you do agree that, you know, I think it's vitally important that folks like Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth and, you know, they, they did Blackout Tuesday stuff and, and that's right. a start. But I, I think it's it's important that, you know, some white people speak up too. it. It doesn't it, it shouldn't just come from the African-American people in golf. Is that do you think that's fair? Or you, I'm curious oh, yeah. your reaction to that. Yeah, it, it, it is. A, it's a burden. It's
1: exhausting to, to suddenly be, you know, an expert on on problems that you know I didn't necessarily create or the black community didn't necessarily create, and and I say that knowing that there's going to be good folks that say, well, I didn't create this problem either. There's no need slaves. Don't need animals, everybody fairly, um, which is wonderful. Uh, but I, I go back to that, that, that statement about being, you know, being you know anti-racist and being willing to listen and to being you know on point to, to to challenge ourselves to to be better as a society and and it is tough man it's tough to suddenly be you know and i tell you man i feel the calls from every organization and you know i've talked to pga of america folks pga tour folks usda folks um radio interviews podcasts and i'm thankful I'm thankful that I I feel like, you know what, I've got two parents who went to Compton High School. I used to go to Compton every summer, so I know what the inner city is like. I also grew up in a largely white neighborhood in Sherman Oaks, California, home of the Valley Girl and Valley Dude from the 1980s. So, So I have like a lived experience where I feel like I can speak with some authority about some of the ills of the inner city and some of the challenges of being uh, a black man in a largely white sport or largely white world. So uh, I, I think most people who know me uh, would, would say that I'm an optimist, that I try to lean on the good in everyone. And, and I do feel like as tiring as it may be as burdensome as it may be to suddenly be, you know, asked to, to to solve these issues and try to answer these questions. I also feel like I have some authority on it because it's been my life in 48 years of seeing, you know, my grandparents moving from, you know, obviously, they, they told me I I was there, but moving our family from the south to California in the 1950s because Emmett Till, a black man, a black boy, 14 years of age, who was accused of whistling at a white uh, woman and was killed uh, for it. My family, my ancestors, moved our family from Memphis, Tennessee, to California for for a better way of life, and I and I can speak to that, um, and I can speak to to my mom, you know, driving to the South with her parents and not being able to get food and having to, you know, back go to the restaurants to, get to take food out from the back and then continue on their drive uh, through Oklahoma. So I, I have, like, life experience that I can share um, through my own eyes, through my family's eyes. Uh, but I can tell you, it, it is a bit wearying. But I'm thankful that at least I can help um, start the conversation uh, you know, and I, I love that the Justin Thomas's speech and kept us have relationships with Steph Curry and Andre Iguodala and you know, have spent some time with people from the black community so they can speak with some authority, but it's not just up to me and up to Tiger or Harold Barner or Joseph Bramlett. it's up to, to everyone to kind of look inward and say, Okay, what can I do in my community? Is it supporting African American business? Is it donating to um, you know racial justice organizations or supporting a historically black college or making sure my local police department has de-escalation training or body cameras. I mean, it's just, you can get as granular as you want or big picture as you want. I'm, I'm thankful that I can share some ideas um, with, with, uh, with your listeners and with my viewers. All I can do is speak from the heart, be as honest and transparent as I can because that's always how I, I've been. And and that's in good times and even in these challenging times.
0: Yeah, um, and and you kind of lead me into what I wanted to ask you next. In in your piece, you one of the the, the ending lines you ask, "What can I do?" Um, and I, I I realize I just got done asking you about you know the burden of having to speak, but I, I and you gave some great ideas of because. You are asking that of yourself, but I can tell you mm-hmm. it's something I've asked of myself over the last three and a half weeks. Um, and I'm sure listeners are asking the same thing, like, what what can I do? Um, and besides, you know, the, the, those things you just mentioned, I am struck by, you know, I didn't know your story of how you got into golf, but it, it occurs to me. You know, your old stadium, your old um, station manager just simply t- inviting you and <laughs> taking you to the golf course. You know, if, if we're speaking just in terms of like the golf world, uh, how profound of an impact that had. And so yeah. it's like before this conversation, I, that's probably not something that would have been at the forefront of my mind. But now it's like, well, wait, you know, h- how can I invite and expose? you know, people to the game of golf. Um, and, and so I, I'm sure you 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 keep grappling with that question. And, and so I ask you that personally, but uh, yeah, I, I, many other people I think are, are wrestling with that same question of just, you know, what, what can I do?
1: Yeah. I, and I'm glad that folks are wrestling with it. I think that uh, it feels like it's not just going to be a two or three week thing we move on to the next, um, you know, glaring headline or, or tweet on our feeds, I feel like folks are, are, are kind of looking inward and seeing what they can do. And I think the, but I have an overarching statement. It, it, it's, be, you know, be willing to be uncomfortable. Um, is it, you know, finding a, a a black church near your community and asking a pastor, hey, is there a kid I can take to play golf? I mean, is there, is there, is there uh, a family in need? I mean, I think about the incredible charitable work that the P.J. Tour does every time they go to a, a town and um, whether it's helping uh, a children's hospital or a community center. And, and I think that golf, uh, you know, from the conversations I've had, and uh, we're already seeing things like a race for unity, Morgan Pressel, Henny Zool, and some some folks in the golf community, putting the Peloton race together to raise money for PGA work, which is about diversifying the industry and also LPGA, USGA, girls golf, which is bringing some, underrepresented young girls uh, into our sport. So, I, again, I, I can't help but be optimistic. Uh, Whereas some might be wary. Uh, in, in a way I, may, I may be, a, you know, maybe a, a small part of me is wary, but the bigger part of me is like, man, people are listening. I think people are going to be willing to be uncomfortable, even if they don't know the cancers, even if they might feel guilty, even if they're feeling, well, gosh, maybe I have had some – of white privilege, or maybe if you haven't had any white privilege, or you feel like you haven't, I, I at least appreciate the fact that folks are, are are at least looking in the mirror. I've had people come up to me and say, Damon, this has forced me to look at my own privilege. There, there's been things in my life, I don't ever think about race. I mean, just to be able to say, Damon, I never think about race, well, that, I wish that was me, man. I, I wish I've never had to think about it I wish I've never been pulled over. I wish I've never had uncomfortable looks in, the, in a store. I wish you know, putting on this COVID nineteen mask and walking into a store and seeing the look on the cashier's face—I mean, that, that, that's uh, that, that's that—that's not it's that's not a fun way to live. But I do think that people are saying, "Okay, what are some systemic things that we can address?" And maybe it's a a, a ten-year process or a fifty-year process, and it can be unwieldy if you think about it in those terms. But if just a couple of people say, "I'm going to do this differently," I'm going to look at this, I'm going to call this person, I'm going to donate to this black owned business, whatever it can be. Um, I'm just glad those conversations are happening. I don't think it's going to be a quick fix. Uh, these systemic problems that we see as a society are, they're not weeks in the making or, or even years or decades in the making. I mean, we have had a, a long history of, of, uh, of, of, of racial uh, injustice in our country, but we're a young country still. It doesn't mean that things can't get better. Uh, 10, 50 years from now even with all of the wonderful strides that that, that me and you have talked about uh, during this conversation
0: Yeah, and I will uh, freely I'm I'm just nodding along as you're saying that, like that is, you, you were describing me, and it's something that you know, is uncomfortable for me to reckon with and think about. And gosh, even just, <laughs> I mean, I'll be candid, even, even asking you some of these questions, it's like, it's a little awkward. It's uncomfortable for me, but I, yep. I really do. Um, I, I I just so appreciate it. And and I know, you know, you, I know you said how it, it can make you weary, but um, I, I want to say from, from me to you, it's like, man, this, this helps me. And I hope it helps people listening, uh, begin to learn and think and, and further that process. So, so I, I really, really am grateful for that. Um, I, I kind of, the, the last thing I want to ask you about, and I, it's, it can be you know, race-related or not, and it's something I, I kind of like to ask of, of all the guests is, and especially with your journalism background uh, and, and writing, um, have you read any good books lately?
1: I have. I, I've, I've read a couple. I read uh, Michael Bamberger's Tiger Woods book, uh, The Second Life of Tiger Woods, which I think is a, a wonderful read. Uh, Michael is a former colleague of mine uh, at Sports Illustrated. Spent a lot of time on the road with him talking about books and writing and just someone I think is a fantastic writer. Um, and then the other book I read is called the color of law, which is about the history of segregation in our country. And it kind of explains why things are the way they are in, in uh, the inner city and how both by law and by practice, segregation was, uh, was a part of, uh, of our, of our country, uh, not just during slavery, but post slavery, post-World War II, Jim Crow and how, um, there's a reason why um, cities like Chicago uh, have the issues they have with um, public housing and and, and just poor facilities and even World War II veterans, African-Americans not able to to come back uh, and and have a choice of where to live um, and and being relegated to to certain neighborhoods. So there's my life in, uh, in, you know, in full clarity. Once again, I, I got a sports book, a golf book, and I got a race book, but, but both books that are, Fascinating books, uh, the color of Law by Richard Rothstein. It's also a book that I've recommended to people in this time uh, to learn a little bit more about why things are the way they are in, in this country. And it's not that necessarily, you know, black folks have chosen to live in in squalid con- conditions in our country. It's, it's by a lot of reasons and, and means. It's been a choice. I'm, I'm thankful my parents were able to get my family um, uh, to, uh, to a place in the San Fernando Valley, which is a little bit more bucolic and suburban and um, exposing me to a, a, a different life than I might have had had I grown up in Thompson uh, where things were just a little bit tougher. So just, you know, things that, uh, that, that our, our, our you know, listeners would, would maybe consider picking up, uh, you know, a golf book and then a book on, on, on our country in, in ways that we can improve and, and look inward and, and ask these uh, uncomfortable but I think an uh, important question.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And I, as somebody who's read the Tiger Woods book, I can, I can second that. That is such a, a, a good, interesting read. And um, you've, you've, I'm excited. You've given me a, a, a book to put in my queue um, with, with The Color of Law. So I, I appreciate that. Um, folks can they can find you every morning uh, or weekday morning on, on golf Channel's morning drive I encourage everybody to go to golfchannel.com to read uh, the article we talked about um, can I be both thankful and horrified can I and you know not only here you've you've made a number of various media appearances and and it's been really um it's just been i you know i've watched a number of them kind of prepping for this interview and and getting ready and i i thank you for your willingness to speak out and and your willingness to you know have this conversation with me uh damon thank you so much
1: well thanks for the time and the conversation and uh again i'm 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 looking ahead uh, with a smile on my face and, and hope in my heart, and, and I appreciate that we can have a conversation like this.
0: Perfect. I told him
1: straight drop this and zip lock that. Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap. I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right. Right. Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, Hey. now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite Uh trapper. The absolute truth, yeah, no joke.